tonight on It's a Filthy Goddamn Horror Show. Humans have made sense of life, death, infection, and we created myths to explain our current situation, but also how that in the long term has, has given us this interesting like biological response that we have to just watching horror. Horror movies content on the darker side of the spectrum when life gets a bit overwhelming. Like <laughs> things feel overwhelming and scary, but then you watch something where everybody's terrified and you're like, oh, it's not that bad. I think it's so funny, like sometimes how hard we try to think about things and it's really this simple. It's like the process is the same. Like on the one hand, we're so complex, like we're thinking about the fact that these responses are built in, but we're not that far from freaking out over a cucumber. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to It's a Filthy Goddamn Horror Show, a trivia variety show for and by American Horror Story fans where we take a sidewinding journey through topics inspired by episodes of American Horror Story. This is my bread and butter, Nathan Scathway. And this is uh, feasibly one of the only people, one of the only people in my life who I would be in any way comfortable spending eternity haunting a haunted house with, uh, Monique Christorf. <laughs> that is very good. I feel the same way about I you, actually. Um, I think I want to take a moment before we actually start the episode to address the fact that we are, this episode is being recorded after our yes. hiatus. Which, hopefully, by the time you get to this episode, you will have long forgotten and forgiven us for. <laughs> if not, what are you um, doing here? Like, you just, you've been hate listening <laughs> to us for four episodes. <laughs> and even if that's true, I still appreciate yeah, it. Thank, thank you. you for being here. <laughs> thank you. I just wanted to point out how much it is like us to leave literally the last episode <laughs> of the season for so long. And, and finally, we decided we need to get this... I don't know what I don't want to say taken care of because I don't want it to sound sound like work, but like we need <laughs> to, to get do this it. done. <laughs> mostly because we are so freaking excited to start yeah, with I, Asylum. I'm just brimming with excitement for Asylum. There's gonna be just a endless amounts of things to talk about with that season. And I haven't seen it in a while, I feel like. I mean, when I say a while, I mean maybe a couple years, but <laughs> for how much I watch American Horror Story, Asylum is one that I haven't watched a lot lately. So I'm excited to get into it. And well, funny enough, before Nathan and I even decided to to do this podcast or even got the inspiration and the topic for our podcast, which we had like, you know, verbally expressed to one another, we would hope to make a podcast together somehow, some way. We had decided to watch American Horror Story together, but we did not want to watch Murder House because we'd already seen it so many times. So we started with the first episode of season two, Asylum, yeah. and then... It was immediately or shortly after that we were inspired to do an American Horror Story themed podcast. Yeah. So we watched that one episode <laughs> and went all the way back around. So that episode will still kind of be fresh in my mind. But yeah, I feel the same way. I'm not sure I've ever really tackled Asylum more than once. I, a couple years ago, did a full watch through of, of the series with my roommates. But that, I think, was the last time that I watched Asylum. And that was like three or four years ago now. So it's been it's been some time. So needless to say, we are excited. We're excited to be back. We're excited to look forward to the future and to maybe get ourselves kind of back to the place where this is this is something that that we are are I don't know I don't want to say like able to do but like Just do it. 
Yeah. Do it. We're, we're excited to, to keep going. So season one, Murder House, episode 12, Afterbirth. This is, of course, the episode where everybody dies. <laughs> and we kind of learn about the dynamics of the house, of the ghosts in the house after the Harmons are all tragically trapped there. And we also learn about a character who will return, Michael. Yes. Michael Landon Indeed. and and his peculiar behaviors. Um, I am starting out the show just by saying that things are I'm I'm doing something that I've never really done before. This is kind of gonna be a different way that I've I've approached my topic for this podcast. Just changing it up. Okay. I will say origin my original inspiration was to specifically look at like bad therapists in horror mm -hmm. in the horror genre a topic near and dear to your heart <laughs> <laughs> a topic yes with with as you know as i have watched uh and and cringed at ben Harmon's atrocious therapeutic practice <laughs> i can't i couldn't help but like acknowledge how his terrible therapy propelled the horror yeah. right Surprisingly to me, that was a difficult topic to research only because I had found so much typing in, you know, all of the different keywords that I was trying to type into Google to get me the results that I was looking for. I could not get past this wall of the research that has been done on how horror may in some way be therapy okay. or therapeutic. Okay. What do you have to say, or, or what are your ideas on, on how horror might be therapeutic, Nathan? Well, I can say from from experience that I tend to gravitate towards sometimes horror movies, true crime documentaries, just content <laughs> on the darker side of the spectrum when life gets a bit overwhelming because it's it it's almost like a by comparison thing. Like things feel overwhelming and scary, but then you watch something where everybody's terrified and you're like, oh, it's not that bad. Like, you know what I mean? It, it's especially because it's it's a problem that you're removed from. So it gives me it gives me somewhere to put like my stressed out feelings without it having anything to do with my life. That that is very insightful. <laughs> and I want to talk about some of the points that you brought up. So I'm doing a lot of psychoeducation today. Right. I'm so ready. Thank you. Thank you for coming um, to to the session with me. <laughs> Just kidding. I don't think I'm allowed to say that. This is not therapy. I am not providing therapeutic practice. <laughs> okay. I'm going to go back to your insights um, on, on your perspective or your thoughts on how horror can be used in a ther therapeutic way. So in the research that I had found um, for for this concept... A large part of this idea stems from something called exposure therapy. Nathan, do you know what this is? Um, I have a, a shaky understanding of exposure therapy, just in that it's exposing the, the, the patient to the thing that, that they're afraid of or that brings them anxiety or, you know, generally a yeah. bad reaction. Yeah, exactly. To get them used to it. Exactly. So exposure therapy is is forcing ourselves to face to face our fears as a way to overcome it. Um, this is a highly effective practice. It is helpful in treating anxiety disorders, PTSD, phobias, and OCD. This treatment works by, I'm going to get a little scientific here, so I apologize. And if you need me to clarify a little bit further, I can and will. But that this will treatment works. <laughs> Thank you for by, making me feel safe. 
(laughs) (laughs) The treatment works by retraining the amygdala, which is the fear center of the brain, through a gradual process of activating the amygdala via exposure to the feared object or situation. So exposing clients to their, their fears with the idea of teaching the client they can handle the perceived threat and the fear is likely not to be as bad as they thought it would be. That That is kind of like the beginning, middle, and end process of exposure therapy. Typically, you, you know, you don't start with a big, bad, top 10, like, fear, yeah. right? You start with what, like, the, the smallest thing that will give you a slight fear reaction, but that you can handle. Yeah. I don't want to trigger anybody. Well, I I mean, I've, I've already talked about so many things in this entire season of this podcast. Um, <laughs> I think that, but, that like, ship has sailed <laughs> with this entire season of everything that we've both talked about. If I were to give, like, a good example might be someone who is afraid of spiders or has a phobia of spiders. You don't just whole hog first day bring out a, a spider to them in person. Yeah. That That isn't exposure therapy. That is trauma. You are traumatizing them. <laughs> what you do is, is it's more than bullying. Uh, it's a little bit worse than bullying. Um, you, you ask them to kind of pick like what is something that is difficult but manageable. And that might be imagining a spider. That might even be looking at a picture of a spider or watching a video of a spider or, you know, having like an animatronic spider. So nothing that's the real thing that's still going to give you a fear response. And you are then, trig- you know, exposing yourself to create a trigger for you then to overcome and manage to teach yourself that you, even if you are exposed to something that is fearful, you know how to regulate yourself. And then obviously then the thing that you can manage becomes kind of more and more up the scale of the big bad real life spider near you or closer. And by that point, you will have, you will know how to regulate yourself to manage that. So that is exposure therapy. So just kind of referencing some studies, there was a 2018 study that found that horror fans may enjoy being scared because it helps them gain a sense of mastery or control over their fears from the safety of wherever they're watching the movie, whether, whether it be their living room or a movie theater. A 2012 study from the University of Westminster showed that the body experiences an adrenaline surge during scary movie viewings. So research has been done to show that this is an effective way to kind of get that bodily response we're looking for to be able to retrain your body. And a study conducted in 2020 found that parts of the human brain process a horror movie as if the threat were real, which prepares the body to react in the same way that it would in a real life situation and triggers the fight or flight response. This is the next thing I would like to teach you about. I, I, I kind of, in my line of work, it feels like fight or flight is something that is common knowledge, but it's very possible that there are people who aren't very familiar with this. And I personally love to teach people about it. So our, our fight or flight is an automatic response that happens in our bodies to process fear. In a perceived dangerous situation, our sympathetic nervous system, which is a collection of nerves weaving from the spine into the rest of our body, triggers this biological response by increasing heart rate, raising blood pressure, and sending extra blood to muscles so the danger or threat can be confronted or absolutely ran away from as fast as possible. (laughs) During this process, endorphins are also released into the body, which, as some people may know, are the body's natural painkillers, but also are fun little things that increase uh, feelings of pleasure. 
There's also, I have like little tidbits in here that aren't really relevant, but I think are really cool. No, teach me. I want to know because uh, I guarantee you I don't know anything about them. <laughs> with with all of this extra blood that's being put into certain places, um, and as our heart rate increases, our, our breath rate increases, which increases the oxygen in our body, which is good for our brains and it helps us think really quickly in stressful situations. It makes, it makes our cognitive abilities that much acute and that much better to handle the stress in that situation. Like our bodies are so fucking cool. Um, to be able to do this. So when we come down from our fight or flight, when either we realize that the danger is not real and it's just perceived or the danger has been escaped or eliminated, our body then goes into um, a rest and digest response, which is our parasympathetic nervous system taking over, which kind of undoes everything that the fight or flight did. Heart rate slows down. Uh, the sphincter muscles in the gastrointestinal and urinary tracts relax. Intestinal and gland activity increases. Our our body is better at conserving energy. And digestion and, and our ability to like go to the bathroom is now a again a priority in our body. Our body does not like to like to think about being hungry or having to poop while we're running away from a saber-toothed tiger or <laughs> some other kind of. That's usually the example that I give when I teach kids yeah. about because these these are these are, you know, automatic bodily responses that ha- we have been given by our caveman ancestors who very much lived within these where their lives were threatened on a daily basis by large animals that wanted to eat them. You don't have to include any of this either. No, it's interesting. I mean, can you imagine if if your if our brains didn't naturally uh, naturally like cancel that out? Like, if you were running for your life and you really had to go to the bathroom, yeah, can you those imagine? people are dead. You wouldn't. You would be. Those I would people be like, died. Kill me. Those those people did die, and that's why they're not here anymore. Yeah. And that's why we don't yeah. have their biological functions. We have the functions of the people whose bodies knew how to prioritize survival. Yeah. So so all of our, our body comes back online. We can live like a normal life without having to go above and beyond to survive the situation that we're in. But there's also something really cool about this process, this rest and digest process. So this response may contribute to the feeling of relief and also some increased sense of well-being because dopamine is also released during this process. And this might be kind of like the contributing factor to the the effectiveness of exposure therapy it it is that dopamine response of that sense of euphoria that you might get after being triggered that actually helps your brain realize like oh not only can i conquer my fear but i feel kind of good when it's done i see that and that's how our bodies work is if something feels good we like to do it i don't need to explain that to a lot of people (laughs) so i'm i'm kind of a nerd this is not news to anybody. And I, I like to kind of think about or know about how particularly like innate these responses are in us as, as humans and also like what we had to create in our real world to kind of make sense of the things around us. I'm being really cryptic right now and That's I apologize fine. for that. So I'm just going to I'm just going to talk. I'm respecting the, the, the storytelling process. <laughs> so there's there's a concept called prepared learning. Um, there's been research done by Nobuo Mistaka, which found that children as young as three are very quick to spot snakes, especially snakes that are poised to strike in comparison to flowers, 
or even modern day threats. And these are obviously images they saw on a computer screen. They did not expose <laughs> three-year-old children to real life snakes. But it, think about how interesting that is, is like these evolution evolutionary influences are coming from so far long ago that a three-year-old child knows that a poised snake is a danger but like things like guns which is obviously a modern day threat that hasn't been kind of backlogged into our 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 biology yet again like sweet sweet survival gifts we've been given from our ancestors i mean and that's that's like a across a lot of species there are a lot of just like instincts that are are built in genetically even though those animals or what creatures whatever don't face those threats like i remember hearing that the reason that cats freak out if you put like a banana or a cucumber have you seen those videos where people put like a banana or a cucumber on the floor behind a cat and then when the cat sees it they freak the fuck out and like jump into the air it's they think it's a snake it's it's shaped vaguely enough like a snake and it's unexpected so when they first see it their brain immediately goes danger and they respond by leaping into the air and disappearing from the frame (laughs) I, I think that this is a very, like, humbling uh, topic because we are we are not different. Like, exactly. Like, on the one hand, we're so com- – we, it's, it's almost like we're so complex. Like, we're thinking about the fact that these, these responses are built in, but we're not that far from freaking out over a cucumber. Like, it's, it's basically the same response. <laughs> we're really not. <laughs> we're really not that far. <laughs> okay. <laughs> There's another study that was done by um, a gentleman named Christoph Koch who who showed that the brain region involved in fear learning responds more quickly to the sight of animals and to pictures of people, landmarks, or objects, just kind of further confirming the, our instinctual evolutionary process to respond to fear and terror. But now I would like to talk about how we kind of, in a weird way, like use that process to like create horror. Okay. So... In my research, I found kind of some really interesting examples of of how humans have made sense of life, death, infection, and um, just like, you know, we created myths to explain our, our current situation, mm-hmm. but also how that in the long term has, has given us this interesting, like, biological response that we have to just watching horror. So... You know, myth- mythical monsters are really just exaggerated versions of of real threats that were faced by our ancestors. They are strong, they're unstoppable, and they're insatiable. I don't know if you know this, Nathan, but one one theory of the origin of the vampire myth emerged from the misunderstanding of the appearance of corp of corpses that they were bloated and apparently full of fresh blood. And there was a skeleton that was found. A skeleton from the 16th century that was found in a mass grave near Venice with a brick shoved into its mouth. And the idea that someone shoved this brick into its mouth after it died, after this this person died, to prevent it from feasting after death. So they believed, like, that that just kind of further, you know, like, we... We created this this vampire myth to make sense of how human bodies look after, obviously, we didn't have the information that we needed after they're dead. Oh, I also found, <laughs> this is a little, a little bit irrelevant, but I was like, huh. Um, there's also a theory that the reason that clowns are so frightening is because, like, the facial paint masks their true emotions, which humans need to be able to perceive yeah. threats, and also take into consideration the fact that 
many horror villains wear masks. That's true. To, to prevent our ability to see their facial expressions. Not not really like historically relevant, but I was like, makes sense. No, yeah, it does. Makes sense. Yeah, you're right. So this is a quote from Jocelyn McDonald, who is a therapist and member of the cognitive behavioral therapy team at the Family Institute at Northwestern University. And this quote um, is from an interview with Huffington Post. Nathan, can you read that quote for me? And Jocelyn says, a client could see that even though their heart is racing and their muscles are tight during the movie, they aren't really in any danger. This realization could help them in future situations in which physical sensations of anxiety are present because they could remember that even though their bodies are preparing for possible danger, it is likely just a false alarm. Yes. So kind of going back to how horror helps us manage our everyday real life fears in terms of exposure therapy. And and I like that she used this term false alarm because that is essentially the definition of anxiety. Anxiety is your body's false alarm that there is danger or that there is a future threat or there was a missed threat from the past that may still be impacting us in the present. Because if those threats were real, you that wouldn't be anxiety anymore. That would be legitimate fear. I think it's really important that we take a moment to talk about anxiety. Yeah. <laughs> us? <laughs> yes. So, what especially in terms... <laughs> I don't know. I'm, I'm personally not well familiar with I'm, this condition. I'm just, just kidding. personally not well. So... <laughs> <laughs> So for people with trauma or anxiety, the fight or flight response has a bit of a glitch um, because their brains tend to react to normal everyday occurrences as if they were a major threat. So the fight or flight response is being constantly triggered. And from what, you know, I, I told you before, like that can really fuck up your body to keep certain biological processes online which are only necessary to perform extreme physical feat and to turn off all of the biological functions that allow a process called rest and digest that is what anxious anxious and traumatized people are being deprived of is rest and digest when they are being constantly triggered it's never ending you and i know this being being anxious people this everyday process of going through a tremendously physically demanding response completely warps our resources to do everyday ordinary things, but also it creates this sense of like, oh my God, will it ever end? Like, can I escape this absolute, for lack of a better word, I guess, like this horrific cycle of yeah. being constantly afraid and never never experiencing joy (laughs) once had a conversation about it about it feeling like you're just constantly waiting for the crazy period to end like you're waiting for the calm while also like quietly being afraid that it's never coming so this is why consuming horror may provide relief for these individuals because you get a way to practice feeling scared in a safe environment you get to refocus your brain away from your real life anxieties and you get to enjoy that release, that rest and digest process that I told you that comes after. Because you're having it to, because you got that resolution, right? The the horror finally ended. So, okay, I'm going to talk, we're going to talk specifically about anxiety now. So I learned a lot about this, this man, 
uh, this man's work. His name is Colton Scrivener, and he is a PhD candidate at the University of Chicago, and he studies horror and morbid curiosity. Love it. <laughs> and his research found that, on average, people with anxiety are more likely to be fans of horror. What do you think about that, Nathan? <laughs> I think that makes a lot of sense. That seems to track. <laughs> Two very anxious people making making an uh, explicitly horror <laughs> podcast. Um, and also, unsurprisingly, horror fans also score very high in morbid curiosity, which, if, for people who don't know, is the interest in learning about threatening situations. Makes a lot of sense. We watch a lot of true crime. Would you please read this quote from uh, Colton Scrivener? Yes, Mr. Scrivener says, Interestingly, anxiety and morbid curiosity seem to stem from similar psychological roots. A central aspect to both anxiety and morbid curiosity is an increased interest in gathering information about threats, even if it may, even if it may be unpleasant to gather that information. This may be part of the reason why many people with anxiety are horror fans. That makes sense. I, and I, that's fascinating. I think it's so funny, like, sometimes how hard we try to think about things, and it's really this simple. It's like the process is the same. Like, yeah. <laughs> you identify threats in your re- real life, and here is an entire franchise that is just about things that could threaten you. Like, yeah. <laughs> you're turning, like, your everyday life into, like, your recreational hobby in, like, a very safe and contained way. So... A person who experiences anxiety may benefit from consuming horror because it allows them to be in the present moment and focus their attention towards something unrelated to their personal worries. Horror movies provide tangible fears where anxious people can focus their mind. They know it is fictional and they themselves will not be harmed. The plot resolution or even just the fact that this horror film has to come to an end offers a sense of safety. So viewers can experience that rest and digest process and escape from their everyday anxiety with the conclusion of the movie. I know, I know I like a horror film, especially one that, I mean, I do also enjoy a horror film that throws me for a loop, but I love, I love the predictability of a horror film where like you, there's a roadmap that you're following. Um, you, you absolutely know that there's an end. You can almost tell like when it's coming, you know, that you know that there's not very much information left to get. And there's absolutely no consequences to my own personal real life to what happens on this screen, right? So people with anxiety get to practice having anxious feelings that are kind of self-inflicted. It's it's within your power. You are choosing this. You know what's going to happen. And sometimes horror films also kind of give you a sense of validation of like, yeah, I think everyday life is terrifying. <laughs> and then I watched this movie where everyday life is terrifying. Yeah. And you might, I mean, Nathan and I, you you and I, we talk about this all the time of, of watching, you know, whether it's in American Horror Story or a film of like, unfortunately, this was so prevalent in, in Murder House. This experience of like, there are people who are vastly aware of what's going on. They know that house is haunted. And they are doing literally everything possible that they can do to escape the horror and then there are the one or two people who are like no oh <laughs> and like that is such a validating experience too because you know anxious people are like okay but have you thought about this have you thought mm-hmm. about this dangerous situation that could happen and and having other people be like why would you even think about that like why would you <laughs> why would your brain even jump to that place and so 
having it played out in front of you, I mean, it, it can like reinforce some problematic behaviors, but it is still very validating to be like, look, there was someone who was anxious and right. Yeah, yeah, that's true. <laughs> I think, I, I mean, just looking at this season alone, if there's any character that most people commiserate with, I think it would be Vivian. Oh. She is she's the she is frequently just the one who is dealing with the most shit and is is constantly having her perception and her feelings and her experiences questioned and invalidated and I feel like that's especially just from what you're saying about anxious people tending to be horror fans I think that's something that anxious people are very familiar with so I feel like there's probably are always a character in most yes. horror things for for that that represents that experience but I think just looking at murder house specifically it's definitely vivian i think if there wasn't that kind of character it wouldn't be horror that's true yeah or just thinking back to a movie that we talked about a couple episodes ago midsummer yes (laughs) where danny is spending the entire movie being like why are we here (laughs) does nobody else think this is weird and everybody else is like it's fine do some shrooms It's it's really interesting that you bring up kind of that uh that I can't help but think about Vivian's experience, but as a gendered experience. And I found and deleted a lot of gender specific like studies that had been done about under which contexts certain populations enjoy horror more. And I I didn't include it because I was like this isn't really relevant. I just think it's really interesting and also but I also didn't like it because I was like this is really sad of like. You know, people enjoy horror more if they feel like the person who's being victimized deserve it, deserve the punishment. You know, men tend to enjoy horror more, you know, if if there is, like, a woman who specifically looks like she deserves the violence, um, receiving the violence. And I was like, I didn't want to include any of that. But, I like, it, it that kind of triggered me to think about, like, wow, the fact that, like, Vivian is the center point of basically all of the psychological horror and anxiety, like, really fits into that trope. I think the trope of horror of putting the woman in, in the, and then, of course, putting the man at, opposite to her. So there's two more topics I want to... I want to bring up about like why, you know, anxious people specifically might benefit, you know, might get so much uh, gratification provides a healthy escape from stressors, but also reminding you that maybe your stressors aren't as bad as you think they are, because maybe you're worried about, you know, a social gathering with friends and you're watching people getting murdered on your TV. And you're like, well, in comparison, like, I think I can handle my shit. But overall, it, you know, exposure to fear and to, and to things that stimulate fear just teaches people that fear is not lethal and can be tolerated. You are not, even though it's, it's a term, like you are not going to be scared to death. Like you can manage your fear, whether it be on a TV screen or in real life, you can survive it. So I've got a quote here from Elias Abujayadeh, who is a Stanford University professor for psychiatry. And this is again in an interview with Huffington Post. Nathan, can you read this quote? I can, he says. There is some satisfaction, maybe even relief, that people with anxiety can find in the confirmation that, yes, the world is indeed a dangerous, anxiety-inducing place, as I've been saying and feeling all along. For other patients, however, it is a way to place their anxieties in a broader spectrum that includes more, much more severe forms. Paradoxically, horror movies can normalize their symptoms and send the reassuring message that, yes, you are anxious, but things could be much worse which I identify with. I think I identify with both of those, to be honest. 
like it depends what I'm watching. There are times where it feels validating about how I feel, but then there are other times that I watch it for the the comparison of yes, things are bad, but they're not that bad. Everything could exactly. be so much worse. I'm yeah. not living that situation. Well, and I I do I want to preface or maybe not preface is not right word. I want I want to kind of seal this part up with a nice little t- nice, nice little bow that says please use use this cautiously <laughs> um avoid horror that hits too close to home or has to do with like real life trauma that you've experienced the sweet spot for for watching horror to kind of get like the therapeutic benefit but also like <laughs> not do any psychological harm would be to find a movie scary enough to keep your attention and stimulate the fear response, but not scary enough to become overwhelmed or re-traumatized. And may, this might be like the perfect spot to actually talk about the movie that I talked about or the movie that I watched for this week. Because I, I obviously, with the topic that I that I have, I had a, I really could have watched anything. Um, so I had my partner pull up his uh, watch list on Letterboxd. Um, shout out, not a sponsor. And and I chose one of those movies that I felt kind of hit that sweet spot of, I'm curious about it. It sounds like it has an interesting plot, but I know that it's not going to push me into a place where I don't know if I can emotionally handle. Uh, my partner has a lot of like Korean horror on his, oh. his, his watch list. Yeah. Um, so I was like, maybe not, <laughs> maybe not that one. So, so we landed on a movie called Phantasm, which mm. came out in 1979. It is an oldie. It was written and directed by Don Coscarelli. So this movie stars a Michael Baldwin as Mike, who is the younger brother, Bill Thornbury as Jody, who is the older brother. Yeah. This was a time when Jody was a man's name. I just think I think that that inc- that has like such a time period. Like there are no male Jodies. Not to say that Jody yeah. is a male or female name, but like there are no male Jodies right no. now. But I distinctly no. remember the time when Jody was a was a man's name. Um, Angus Scrim as the tall man who was the villain in the movie. Kathy Lester as the lady in lavender who is the vixen in the movie. I'm gonna read the IMDb description for this movie. A teenage boy and his friends, which is. No, they're not his friends. It's his older brother, Jody, and Jody's friend, Reggie. So I don't know why these are a 13-year-old boy's friends. Face off against a mysterious grave robber known only as the Tall Man who employs a lethal arsenal of unearthly weapons. Jesus. <laughs> so this is definitely a B-movie. Um, mm-hmm. Not also very early in the movie, there was a scene that was completely ripped off from Dune, which is a movie that oh. you and I have... Uh, we've seen the new movie, Dune, but all, it's a movie that... Yes has been around since the 80s, but also it's a book from the 1960s, I believe, um, where the younger brother, Mike, is instructed to place his hand inside of a box, which causes him physical pain. (laughs) And it was really funny because my partner, who loves Dune, has multiple copies of the book Dune, literally said before Mike, the character, pulled his hand out, fear is the killer. Mike pulls his hand out and says, fear is the killer, which is directly from Dune. Um, so, I mean, this movie came out before Dune, but, uh, I will say before the first Dune. So Don Coscarelli must have read Dune and, absolutely, uh, kept this concept. And I don't know if he realized that he took it from somewhere or if, um, he does. (laughs) There was a cartoon bonk noise in the movie at one point, Mm -hmm. just, I think when, 
when you uh kind of learn what the creatures are, Mike hits one and it there's a bonk noise in this moment. Brilliant, brilliant. Mike is also a third, and I don't know. This is the 1970s. Uh, I don't know if knowing what I know about my parents' childhood, specifically my dad's childhood, like a lot of this tracks. But I still wanted to just point out that Mike is a 13 year old boy who casually drives a car not even like against (laughs) like he's not even like doing it like against the rules he's like i'm just driving a car now he at one point there's a scene where he is sleeping upright with a loaded gun and he just casually takes a swig of beer like after one of the climaxes which i thought was like such i was like come on now like such a weird (laughs) like portrayal of like a toxic you know masculinity trait of like yeah. i just did a hard thing a i need now. my beer have a drink. <laughs> <laughs> okay so this is a part that i wanted to talk about like this ridiculous death scene that that was in the movie but if you're gonna watch it i absolutely don't want to spoil it for you so i, I won't um okay. but it's amazing it's amazing the 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 special effects of this movie are not high quality and i think that enhances like the amusement or yeah. entertainment factor of the movie there was one point where Mike sees the tall man in town as he's walking around and like, you know, f- from Mike's perspective, things start to s- move in slow motion. And I, as a therapist, really appreciated that because that is a trauma response. People do experience that where if you are triggered by something, time feels different. Time slows down because your body is speeding up and it is, remember, it's you're getting blood in all of the right places and oxygen, including to your brain to sharpen your cognitive ability. So I was like, beautiful, beautiful. There was a point in the movie, I decided to kind of do a little science experiment using myself um, watching this movie because I am kind of testing this, you know, I found a movie in the sweet spot. I waited for a suspenseful moment, which as you've, you know, from my description of this movie so far, you might, might not be surprised to know that was, that was difficult. Um, (laughs) But there was a point where Mike is opening a box and there's something in the box that, again, like Mike is the character in the movie who, who is the anxious person who is like, there is something going on. And his older brother is like, no, there isn't. So he is collecting evidence to try to prove, as most of us do in these situations, of like, look, look, see, come on, you have to believe me now. I think every anxious person has has had this experience. So this evidence is in the box. He's already shown his brother and his brother has seen it. But now they're going to, like, show more people or, or bring it back to where it came from. And he's, you know, something is different. You know something is different. And it, it takes him fucking forever to open this box. And that's when I'm like, ooh. I got excited. That was suspenseful. I felt my heart rate increase. I literally took my heart rate. So before this scene, and I don't know if people are going to learn a lot of, a lot about me, <laughs> but before this scene, my heart rate at a normal at a normal pace, maybe I was walking up some stairs, was at 79 BPM. That was my normal heart rate. A few moments after this suspenseful scene, my heart rate was 89 BPM. And then at the end of the movie, my heart was 71 BPM. So it was even lower than what my heart rate had been from starting the movie. And I will I say, that. I, pay, so cool. <laughs> I paid attention to, to like, and I mean, there's a lot of contributing factors to this, but after the suspenseful moment, because like I said, you get that sense of like pleasure and, and enjoyment. I was like, I, I, I'm enjoying this movie a little bit more, but also like the pace had picked up and then like there were multiple climaxes and like you were learning more things and it was more engaging. But I was also like, I'm not just like waiting for this movie to end anymore. Like I'm really invested. 
but I, I also felt better in my body. Just like my own emotional experience in my body, I felt better. So I kind of, you know, with with an N of one, I was able to do a little bit of experimenting with myself to realize like this this is legit. Like if you pay attention. And I was, you know, especially being mindful of like, I need to be taking deep breaths because I'm, you know, because I've ev- elevated myself as you should, if you are being triggered by something that is not actually placing you in danger, you should practice some emotional regulation to bring yourself back to baseline. And that is essentially exposure therapy in a nutshell, teaching you how to maintain your level of emotional regulation so so that is that's the movie that i watched for this week and i i did a little bit of experimentation and i i put some of these theories to the test i've got a little bit more to talk about as far as like why you know why or how horror can be used in therapeutic ways or or how it kind of creates a pleasurable experience for people that you know makes them want to continue to come back there is a theory called excitation transfer, and this theory is popularized by Dolph Zillman, who is the Dean Emeritus and Professor of Information Sciences, Communication, and Psychology at the University of Alabama. That man has a long title. So this is a theory that argues that the fear experience while exposed to something intensely frightening intensifies the positive emotions experienced after. So it's kind of like your highs and your lows, like the higher the high, the lower the low, or like, so like the bigger the fear, the bigger the pleasure, kind of, you you get what I mean? And this kind of like speaks to something that I found a lot of research for, a trait called sensation seeking. I will be honest to say, like, I'd never had really heard about this trait being, you know, given this name in in such like a definitive way. This is something that was a little bit new to me. Um, It it can also be called thrill seeking, which I am familiar with or excitement seeking, but it it being something that like is is an assigned trait that can be studied was was new to me. Um, So this is the tendency to pursue new and different sensations, feelings, and experiences. This trait would describe people who chase new and or intense sensations, who love experience for its own sake, and who may take risks to pursue those experiences. So people high in this trait might enjoy horror more because the simulated threat of the horror movie provides them with the feeling that they will be prepared to face the danger in real life. There's also a concept that I found for the specific pursuit of horror as benign masochism. So, (laughs) you know, this concept or this um, experience enables people to seek out potentially rewarding, although dangerous experiences as a way to broaden their experiential repertoire. So they are purposely looking for the emotional experiences and responses of being in dangerous situations, again, in that safe element, but for the purpose of like feeling the preparedness, like I could do this, or I'm ready to do this, or, you know, like, I'm sure you've watched a horror film with someone who's like, I would do it totally different or I'll, you know, it's very similar to that. I thought it was really interesting too, like this, this concept of benign masochism has also been used to explain why some people are willing to acquire a taste for spicy and pungent foods that may be initially unpleasant to ingest, but become more pleasurable with repeated exposure. I am not someone who can eat spicy food. So I, I of course, picked up on this as like, oh, these people, these people are just a little bit masochistic. (laughs) Yeah, I can I can deal with 
just like baseline spicy food like it just enough to be able black to pepper oh this is spicy yeah basically <laughs> i can black eat black pepper, pepper. Yeah. Like I have, I, my, my threshold is pretty low, but then there are people who are like, the more it hurts, well, and the more I like it. I'm like, can you even taste it? <laughs> or is it just pain? But, <laughs> but the science is still there too, much like how endorphins are released when we're, when our fear response is triggered, because endorphins are our body's natural painkillers. When we put painful things on our mouth to eat and swallow, <laughs> those endorphins <laughs> also come to be natural yeah. painkillers for that experience too. So there is like... People do experience a rush after eating spicy food because of that. But there are people who are willing to put up with the discomfort or even enjoy it, masochism, um, and people who don't. And I am in that category of I will yeah. – life is painful enough. I'm, I'm not willing to – I don't want my food to hurt. Yeah. <laughs> and food is like one of the few like consistent joys in life. Like why would you make that a painful yeah. experience? But Exactly. It's just some things to be said about people who uh, are high in sensation seeking that kind of reinforce this experience for them um, or maybe are a byproduct of this experience for them. They tend to see the world as less threatening and less likely to produce negative outcome outcomes for them. Research has found that combat veterans who were high in sensation seeking showed better short and long-term adjustment to extreme combat stress and were less likely to report PTSD symptoms than combat veterans who were low in this trait. Also, veterans high in this trait are more li- were more likely to take risks and engage in heroic actions in the face of danger, making them more likely to be decorated for bravery. A study on prisoners of war found that those who were high in sensation-seeking were more likely to use problem-focused than emotion-focused coping and reported fewer feelings of helplessness and lo- loss of control than those who were low in sensation-seeking. And studies have also shown that people who watch horror movies to stimulate sensory reactions may be more aggressive than other people. So people who are less empathetic enjoy horror films more because people who are more empathetic tend to vicariously experience the suffering of a horror film victim. And I can absolutely 100% relate to that experience. And I think that's where I wanted to end. We've, we've gone on this long journey. You know everything <laughs> I think you need to know about how or why horror is a therapeutic experience and where I find myself in those camp of people. (laughs) Hey y'all, I thought this would be a good week to plug an organization doing important work for mental health. The National Alliance on Mental Health provides advocacy, education, support, and public awareness for individuals and families affected by mental illness, with the goal of creating a world where all people affected by mental illness live healthy, fulfilling lives supported by a community that cares. The last few years have been unprecedented and challenging, leaving a lot of people, myself included, with mental health symptoms that may be harder to manage than before. If you are struggling with your mental health for any reason, you aren't alone and there is help available. You can find resources as well as donate at www.nami.org. Well, Nathan, is it time for a twist ending? So for my final twist ending, uh, I would like to pose some questions, questions for reflection about the season of Murder House that we have just finished watching. Um, We've talked a lot about a lot of topics this season on this podcast, but as a, a podcast that at least bases 
the core of its concept on the fact that we love American Horror Story. I always think that we can we can talk about American Horror Story more, and I can talk about American Horror Story for hours on end. So <laughs> I just have a couple uh, reflection questions. It's been about three months since we watched any any yeah. American Horror okay. Story we're content gonna, at all. We're gonna wade through this. This okay. <laughs> You and I are in the same boat. Bog so memory together. <laughs> like, <laughs> okay, so just from your memory, from from what immediately comes to mind, what scene in Murder House scares you the most, and why? Oh, scares me the most. This question, I think, would have been easier to answer before the rewatch because I would have said the reveal scene of Violet's corpse. And, and I talked about that in, in that episode of, like, that was the reason why I chose that topic, because that image of finding her and, like, the bugs crawling out of her mouth yeah. and, like, her face being posed in, like, this excruciating scream. I was like, no, never again. Yeah. I don't I saw it when I closed my eyes. I didn't need to see it. Uh, I, I I mean, I maybe even for, like, the growth. I mean, it's been, it was 10 years since watching Murder House the first time to watching it for the purpose of this podcast. There's obviously a different context. So if I had to choose... Well, I like, I like your answer of just, like, which one scared okay. you the most when you watched it the first time. Because okay. my, my answer is the same. It, it's, it I, doesn't scare me as much now, but when I watched it the first time, this was the scene that scared the shit out of me. I did find a, something that scared the shit out of me now as a full-grown oh, adult me. knowing what I know. And this, I mean, this is still, again, this is like a heavy, it's hidden home kind of heavily, but, like, the scene where Tate commits a school shooting for me was... Yeah emotionally much more taxing this time around um it's viscerally uncomfortable to sit through that scene what what about you uh when i watched it the first time i would say the scene that scared me the most was when uh i believe it is in episode 10 when we see baby tate in the basement playing with the truck and then his truck goes under the chair and the infantata is in the dark under the chair and there's that long just interminably long shot moving into the shadow under the chair while the infantata's face is just very slowly coming out of the dark. That fucked me up. And I talked about that in the episode where, where in some episode of this season, I definitely talked about that, that I was like crawling over the back of the couch screaming when I watched (laughs) that the first time. That just faces barely visible in the dark is something that I don't fuck with. So, because I'm very afraid of the dark. It's one of my, mm-hmm. I mean, I've talked about home invasion being my top fear of things that could happen, but just general things to be afraid of. I'm petrified of the dark. So things being in the dark that you can't quite see slowly revealing themselves is always, always a trigger for me. So yeah, I would say, I would say that scene. Upon the rewatch, probably, probably also the school shooting, just mm-hmm. based on, on, I mean, we had had school shootings when this first came out, but we have had so many more mass shootings in the years since this episode came out. So, like, watching it with that context this time, it's just, it's heavier than it was before. And, you know, I think that there is, because when when Murder House first came out, you and I were, you know, at the very tail end of, of high school or, or already out of high school. But we, mm-hmm. I don't know about you, you know I, we, we had already gone through the experience of knowing that there, like, we had to do lockdown drills. Yeah. Um, you know, this was an ever-present threat. And I do think that a, a mode of survival for for people who are kind of experiencing, like, an omnipresent threat is, like, you, you have to distance yourself from it. 
yes, it is a distinct possibility, but we're not going to dwell on it. We're just going to be prepared for the possibility. And now, like you said, with with a time where many more horrendous school shootings have occurred, but you and I have matured as people to know like how absolutely fucked up that is mm-hmm. to be, you know, we're, we're adults now imagining ourselves or for me, I will say, imagining myself being a high school student or I am a school employee. I work in a school to like think that this is a reality that have some people have had to endure. Like you said, it, it's viscerally uncomfortable. It hits in a totally different way than I think kind of ordinary horror. That's the part where, you know, f- from my topic earlier of like too close to home, maybe yeah, exactly. uh, too threatening, uh, too traumatizing. Question number two. What is your favorite episode of Murder House and why? My favorite episode of Murder House now, boy, oh boy. I feel like because you wrote the questions, you might have an answer locked and, locked and loaded a little bit sooner than I do. I did, but I'm changing my answer as we speak. So <laughs> It's hard because I don't. It, our brains work a little bit. Like you can like pull like episode four, you know, and this happened. And I'm like, <laughs> I know this happened. I don't exactly know when or where it happened. Well, I'm gonna, um, I'll, I'll, do you want me to cut in and, and give mine yes. in the meantime? I will, I was going to say the home invasion episode, which is episode two, because I remember when I watched this the first time I binged like the first three episodes in a row or the first, yeah, I think it's the first three and the first episode is insane. But then the second episode, suddenly they're dealing with a break in and I was, it just caught me so off guard for the second episode of a TV show that the stakes were already so fucking high. And I was utterly terrified. The whole episode when I watched it the first time, I was like, I can't believe this is happening in a TV show. Like, what are these people going to go through next? In hindsight, I think I would actually have to cheat and say (laughs) the Halloween two-part. Oh. There's just a lot of really good, like, interpersonal drama and expansion of the character stories and monologues. Like, that has the the gorgeous monologue where Constance is at the, the morgue putting mm-hmm. the makeup on Addie. That's yes. one of my favorite scenes of the entire season. It's heartbreaking, but it's gorgeous. So yeah, I think I think the Halloween two part is my favorite. Okay, maybe I'll go for like a different one. And and I don't know if because when you ask me like what my favorite episode is, like I'm not thinking about like what terrifies me the most or what was the yeah. most frightening. Which like, what do you enjoy? Exactly. And that that is a perspective I'm coming from. And I think I would not have said this, you know, after the first my first time watching American Horror Story Murder House, but having done this this series and I think learning more about the influences of of the content we've just consumed, I, it's kind of an underdog, but I love Piggy Piggy. Piggy Piggy is a great episode. You know, there are some episodes, you know, like you said, that completely throw us for a loop. Episode two, Home Invasion, you're completely like thrown out of what you were expecting to experience after the first episode of, of this brand new TV show. And then there are some episodes, like I think about maybe, I don't know if you're going to ask about least favorite episode, but like, I think about like the Dahlia episode where I was like, I don't know if I like, that's, that's, that's a bit grabby, you know, like we're really yeah. trying to search for something, but Piggy Piggy was so, it was still like embedded enough in the story, but its own, but its own personal experience mm-hmm. with like, just like these, like, I don't, I mean, because there was, I think that was the Fugue State episode where... I think so. And was that the episode where he potentially, like, there was, like, a suspicion that he had murdered one of his clients or no? Maybe. I don't know. It, that might not that might not even be relevant. But I really do appreciate that there is kind of the subplot that is 
in the background of the story of this Eric Stone Street's character, you know, going to Ben Harmon, seeking therapy for his irrational fear of, you know, urban legends and has the unfortunate experience to go, you know, to do what his therapist tells him to do, to go to the bathroom and just do it, just say it and then be murdered as like this completely and how (laughs) how devastating that was to have that kind of hit home and have it really have nothing to do with the whole series at at all or this the season at all but it for it to be like a slap in the face like that beautiful brilliant yeah love it you had to spend eternity as a ghost in murder house with one of the characters (laughs) who would it be Oh no! <laughs> Maybe the answer I don't want you to put on this episode would be, would be Tate. <laughs> it's Tate. It's Tate. Yeah, yeah. I um gotta do the numbers on how old that he would. You know, he's a minor and I'm not. But um, that would have def- that would absolutely have been you know 18 year old Monique first time watching this this TV show. I would have been like, I don't care where. Lock me up with Tate anywhere. Yeah. Um, <laughs> 29 year old Monique let's see I don't know maybe you can just tell me what you think about this I'm kind of I'm, tr- I'm drawn to Violet for some reason okay. I think I think that there is I don't know there's there's a level of complexity there but also still innocence that I think you know allows the opportunity for growth and that's that's what I would do you know as we see in like later episodes um of, of American Horror Story that try to incorporate the plots of, of Murder House, you see that there are multiple therapists trapped in this home trying to perform ghost therapy to, to many different people. I would probably be one of those people, even though while I was watching those episodes, I was like, you're dead. Why would you want to do your job still? Um, I love that. But if, well, I'm, you know, I wouldn't do, I wouldn't spend the whole time trying to do my job. But if that does, you know, bring some compelling... It's not, I didn't even pick an answer, like, who would I have the most fun with? Or, like, who, whatever. I'm like, who could I do the most work with as a therapist? Violet. And you, Nathan, who would you trap yourself with? I I have to cheat, because my answer includes apocalypse continuity for the murder house. It would be Constance. As a gay man, yes. <laughs> I just, I want to spend an eternity getting in fights with Constance. Like, I want to I wanna gossip with her. I want to argue with her. <laughs> just yes. I just just it would be fun. <laughs> that is cheating though. You do have to it wait for her to kill cheating. herself. But if if I were just going with characters who are either already dead or die within Murder House's continuity, I feel like maybe I would say either Violet, just because I feel like maybe we could be friends, or oddly Moira. <gasps> You know because what? I wouldn't have to be worried. Like there would be no. I wouldn't be seeing young Moira because I'm not <laughs> not interested. So I would get like old, wise, sassy Moira who always has something helpful to say. And that's I feel like if you're going to be haunting a house for eternity, that's the person you need. That's kind of so. I also was like Moira. Uh, not until you brought her up, but I was like Moira. And but my motivation is completely different because I'm like, man, if I want someone to like really comfort me. And like validate me and like support me. Like I'm going to Moira. Like yeah, exactly. I'm not. I'm not even going to Vivian because Vivian I think needs to do her own healing. And Moira has yeah. has done enough of her healing so much so that she's like later allowed to. I mean, she's able to leave. I mean, it mm-hmm. takes a live person to help her. But 
Um, I, I do think that's part of the, the, the process for these spirits to be able to leave is like, they have to grow. Trauma. Who's your least favorite character? Oh God. Ben. Ben Harmon. Easy. Fucking hate him. Yeah. Even as we're sitting here and we've hardly talked about him. Like I, hmm. I will, I surprise myself by not agreeing. Ben is, is a close second. He's a very close second, but at the very least he has just like, one or two minorly redeeming qualities. <laughs> he's not 1000% awful all the time. He's like, he's like a solid 999. <laughs> I am so curious to know who is, who is the hundred percent for you then? Mr. Eskandarian, the real estate dude. Oh boy. <laughs> just, I, just yes. utterly terrible. <laughs> oh yeah. I mean, I don't I do. feel bad for him at all at the, <laughs> at the end of his arc. I imagine that him, like, he and Ben probably spend some time being, like, really awful, disgusting humans together. Uh, or ghosts, I should say. Being really awful, well, he's disgusting he's got a ghost in the house, remember? They they oh. get him off the house before... That's, like, the last thing that we see of him. He's, like, in the basement and Constance like, get him off the property before he expires. Well, then good. Ben doesn't deserve to have a friend in the afterlife. No, he doesn't deserve... And those poor women don't need to be sexually harassed or assaulted by... Exactly. <laughs> If you could spend your eternity haunting one place, where would it be? It can be a real place. It can be a figurative place in a general place. <laughs> it can be anything you want. This is a big question and like not something that you would think about because who thinks about this? <laughs> there are, I mean, there's so many options and there's so many like, like what, what needs would I want to have be met? Do I want it to be like a meaningful place to me in my life or do I want to be this like, entertained as a ghost do i do i want lots of things <laughs> to do as a ghost um give me two answers because now i have two i have a p pe- i have like which one would make me happy like on a peaceful level and then which one would make me happy on like a schadenfreude level um <laughs> so. so a peaceful level for me immediately pine lake that's a good one yeah that's i was like I immediately i was like yeah it, it's it's isolated like i'm not i wouldn't be interested in haunting other people i wouldn't be interested in like i would just want to go about enjoy like nature you know have without being bothered (laughs) you know i'd probably honestly be i'd be hanging out in straw bale because most people it you know it's it's a little that's not a residential it's a nice little like resort house that people tend to rent out um and i wouldn't be bothering many people that'd be my peaceful place but like my schadenfreude, like I just, if I'm a ghost, I need things to do for the rest of my life if I'm really trapped. I don't know, because I'm like, I think I would get sick of a lot of these places eventually, because I'm thinking like, Disney World? Uh, <laughs> Mall of America? Uh, I'm not putting a lot of thought into this, and I don't know what you're going to say, but uh, like the Harry Potter part of Universal Studios. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. That's where I would be. Like, if I'm like, all right, I'm dead. I just want something to do. I want, you know, I got, this is where I'm going to be for the rest of my life. And this is where I'm going to hang out. Uh, That's hilarious. I love it, that. What about you? Um, My peaceful place was uh, a cabin on an island in the Pacific Northwest, but also Pine Lake. <laughs> like, uh, same needs are being met. My my Schadenfreude place, like if I want to spend my eternity as a ghost fucking with people, <laughs> I, I try to be like strategic about it, and I'm thinking the United States Capitol building. Oh, <laughs> we are like, learning. Just, j- 
just spend time haunting the shit out of the politicians who make bad decisions until they either change their minds or quit out of fear. <laughs> I like that. I like that you're giving your uh, your haunting has a purpose. Like you, yeah, even as a ghost, you're like I'm. I'm make. I'm making waves. People are. I think are people have just learned something very specific about you and I based on the on how we answered that that question. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it's 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 just entirely like if I wanted to spend my eternity fucking with people, but as a person who is like was afraid of everything and still gets freaked out at the idea of ghosts i feel like i probably wouldn't want to fuck with people unless they were terrible which is why united states capitol building <laughs> you know but let's be honest there's probably there's, there's probably fine ghosts who are already doing that much needed hard that work true. for us that so is true. or the white house exactly just like, like haunt a president out of the presidency if they're not doing well and they would never be able to tell anybody why so powerful imagine the power of that spirit. exactly you you are the president at that point basically you call the shots you say who's and in and out my final question of season one of it's a filthy goddamn horror show and we have talked about this before but just definitively give your your response to this do you believe in ghosts absolutely positively i know some people have like a knee-jerk reaction to that because I, I have been very, you know, with people that I've hardly, I've hardly known very long, I, I'm very honest to say. And it's always something that I like to learn about other people because I do think that it tells me a little bit about them. And of course, my answer tells them a little bit about me. But I, I absolutely believe that there are ghosts because we've been trying to make sense of these unexplainable situations for as long as we've recorded human history mm-hmm. and i can't ignore that there there are there are things that can be explained and there are things that can't be ignored and my brain really struggled with that gray area of like being in and out so i have to pick one and if you were to ask me to pick one i would have to pick the one that makes them that makes the most sense and it is that some of these experiences are legitimate and there's no explanation for them other than to believe i yes i agree i if I had to give my bullshit answer, I would say I don't really know, but I can't rule it out. <laughs> that is a pretty if bullshit had, answer. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, if I had to give an actual answer, I would say yes. Yeah. Simply because I, regardless of, of whether you want to take it seriously, there are stories, accounts, and little bits of evidence that do support the theory. But I don't know that you can point to any evidence that proves that ghosts don't exist. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's there, there is, I mean, you could also say sort of the same thing about aliens or, or unicorns. Like there's no evidence that it doesn't exist. So how are you going to say it doesn't? But at the same time, there is just touches of evidence that they do. So like. It's so funny that you went to, uh, aliens and unicorns because <laughs> my brain like that's that's the argument for the existence of god we that's can't where rule i it wanted out. to go but i was afraid <laughs> i mean like I mean, but let's like, go there i mean the spirit like the spiritual realm and the existence of god are are very closely linked for some people they are very definitively separate where in fact where if you believe in ghosts you're almost like spitting in the face of the idea of god but i i think and this comes from a person who does not believe in God, but like I, I think they are very closely linked. If you are to believe in one, you I think it's very possible or possible to believe in the other. 
Yeah, I don't um, think they cancel each other out. No, but but there are some people who do go to that extent, and it, it does yeah. become kind of like a delicate topic to bring up. Um, but it, it's it. I mean, that is the argument. Like, we cannot prove that God or ghosts don't exist. Having said that, the controversial thing that came to mind that I was afraid to say, but that I'm going to say, I'll just go ahead and it's the finale, whatever, balls to the wall. Um, I would argue that there is more evidence for the existence of ghosts than there is for the existence of God. Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yes. Again, coming from two people who are, who are, uh, we're not very religious people here. And there are people who I'm I'm sure would like disagree with that sentiment of I'm sure there are people who have like daily experiences that confirm for them the existence of God and we're not like I would never want to like invalidate or discredit that. No, but never. we're only ever speaking from our own experience, especially here on our tiny podcast. <laughs> Thank you for joining us this week. We hope that you enjoyed learning about the American horror genre and the horror history that inspired it. If you liked what you heard this week, please do us a favor and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also find us on TikTok at Filthy GD Horror Show, Instagram at Filthy GD Horror Show, and on YouTube. You can also email us your questions and suggestions. Please no insults, um, but we will take constructive criticism <laughs> at FilthyGDHorrorShow at gmail.com. Please also consider donating to our featured charity this week. Links to that organization can be found in the episode description. The show isn't sponsored by this or any other organization. We just really like to shout out good people who do good things. Tune in next week for the second part of our season finale here on Filthy